Hello and welcome to In Line with Nature, the podcast that explains an approach to building that puts the future of our planet first. With me, Hannah McInnes. In this series, I talk to experts about modern day construction, its impact on the natural world, and why the time for change is now. I'll be talking to our series of guests about new approaches to design, reimagining a built environment that's at one rather than at odds with nature. My name is Kedus Asfal. I'm the CEO and co-founder of a company called Cubic. We turn hard-to-recycle plastic waste into low-carbon, low-cost building materials in Africa. Okay, so that's already a pretty extraordinary job title. And I expect people's immediate question is, how do you do that? So one thing that people don't realize is a lot of the plastic that we put in the recycling bin still ends up in landfills. A lot of that is because it's very difficult or very expensive for it to be converted to something else that's very valuable to industry. Just to give you some very disappointing numbers, uh, there's about 360 million tons of plastic that go unrecycled every single year in the world. About 60 million of that is in Africa. And you actually see it in a very stark way when you go there because it's not hidden as well as you might see here in Switzerland or in the U.S., So what we do is we focus on getting those really difficult to recycle plastics and we are able to find a way of converting it back into building materials such as bricks, columns, beams that kind of interlock like Legos to make walls. And what we discovered is these are very cheap. So it actually incentivizes real estate developers to use this in lieu of cement, which is a very polluting substance within the built environment. And if it was a country, would be the third largest greenhouse gas emitter in the world. So we're tackling a lot of things all at once. Plastic waste, of course, climate change as our cities grow, but also driving down the unaffordable cost of housing in most of these growing cities in Africa. So what do these buildings end up looking like? What aesthetically do they look like and how physically do they function? They look very boring, and that's by design. They look like any other wall that you would see made from cement. So if you go to most parts of Africa, for example, the traditional way that buildings are made are through bricks, cement, and these walls are then plastered. So we're actually able to provide a very similar type of finish. It looks very slate gray, but the reason why we kept it super boring is developers at the end of the day want to finish their homes the way that they like. So what they actually expect from a material like ours is that they can paint it, they can plaster it or drywall it. So we didn't spend too much time trying to make it look fancy because we actually saw there's an adverse effect to a product market fit when you do that. And what about in terms of living in these buildings? How do they differ from other buildings with, within you know, the communities where you're putting them? Building. They're almost the same. There's certain things they're a little bit better at. So if you put it in a very hot environment, for example, there's such a high thermal insulation that comes from our product that the need for air conditioning is slightly lower. 
just to give you an example, in Abidjan, where uh, my co-founder and I led a project for UNICEF using very similar technology, a classroom was able to be close to 10 degrees Celsius cooler with just proper ventilation. So that's one of the most incredible parts of this product. So you're also saving on energy use in homes. The second one is acoustic insulation is super, super high. It's a very dense packed product. What that means is if we use this as partitions for apartment blocks, chances are you're not going to hear your neighbor next door. Does everybody ask you, why isn't everybody doing this? Always. <laughs> and uh, developers actually ask, why aren't you making more as well? Yeah. And so that's the question. Why isn't everybody doing this and is it scalable? It definitely is. I think one of the things that we were able to crack, which we see our competitive advantage around, is our use on these hard-to-recycle plastics. There are companies that exist that convert plastic waste into some form of uh, brick or block, but there's two things that they fundamentally don't focus enough on. One is they actually use plastics that are recyclable, such as PET water bottles, as an example, because they're readily available, easy to use, and they know how to do something with it. But the cost is too high to buy it. The second is that they have focused too much on the brick when they should be focusing on the wall and focusing on the complete product and how that as a system could work. And that's something that we've done. Now, one of the things that we stand for and what our mission is, is to build dignity through clean and affordable living for all. Dignity comes in so many different ways. And the most evident way that we see it is through how plastic is collected. In most parts of the continent, there are tens or even hundreds of thousands of waste pickers. They exist. The workforce is there. But the majority of them are women, 85 to 90 percent of them. They're destitute because they're cut out of actually having direct market access to buyers. There are middlemen, and yes, they're usually men, that actually buy it for such a small amount from them and then are able to sell it to buyers at a much larger price. So what we've decided to do is work directly with collectors and actually give them direct market access to our business. So we work with municipalities, we work with social enterprises that can actually mobilize and train these collectors in the thousands to be able to sell to Cubic. So that brings the fourth and most important pillar for us, which is economic mobility for women. We as a business believe that women are the most investable human beings. And as long as we are able to invest in their economic growth, we believe that they also become uh, agents for making our cities a lot cleaner and better. Gosh, it's extraordinary. And um, I suppose in, in many ways, yesterday we, had, we we were here in the Closest Forum. I don't know if you heard Bill Reid talking about how in some senses um, doing good is doing bad um, how, because because of all the sort of connotations of putting our way onto your way. But do you feel that what you're doing, how does that go down with the community? Do, does it feel natural and does it, do people take to it? Yeah. And that's why we actually put the word dignity into our mission. Dignity means really understanding what opportunity and choice looks like for any individual and really focusing on how we can drive a business that enables that. So whenever we go to a new market, well, currently we're in Ethiopia. 
what we're really looking at is what does that system look like and what is the need? Whether it's from housing and the product that we build or from recycling and how we source. So we really focus on how we actually build trust. Trust was spoken a lot at, at, at the forum, but also on how we provide spatial justice, which is probably the most fascinating terminology that I took away from the discussions here at Closters. If we are able to create a market where people have the choice of where to live, they have the choice of who to be, then we've actually built dignity. That's what we believe here at Cubic. So when we go to a new market, we have to do that same and probably even more uh, listening than we've done in our last market because we do not want to be uh, biased by our experiences in the past. We actually really want to be understanding the local context and how we can be catering to a dignified way of life. And do you get pushback along the lines of, well, we've watched the Western world use brick. We've watched, you know, use concrete. This is associated with progress and going in the right, right direction. And we don't want this. We want to, it's our turn to, to use these materials. And you said it looks very much the same. So that might stop that pushback. But is it still there in a sense from developers, from communities? Absolutely. Unfortunately, climate change, trash, affordability, these are all very political terms, right? Uh, it can be politically driven really quickly. And I do empathize that, you know, a city like Addis Ababa, which has over 1 million housing unit deficit and are trying to accelerate and being able to meet housing demand, do feel like they're being pushed down. The moment where there's more guardrails, especially on the environmental side, that are put on them to meet this because they are trying to cater for real human beings with real human-related problems every day, and it's growing. So the way that we actually discuss this with these stakeholders is not with the angle of sustainability in mind. It's really around things that they care about. Affordability means having cheaper building materials, right? So when we market our product, it's not market, marketed as a product made out of hard-to-recycle hard plastic waste and that it's uh, and that it's uh, a lot less polluting. Sure, that's a plus. But what they care about is, is this cheaper? Is this faster and easier to build with? And does it look like what I am used to for a quality wall? And that's really what we focus on getting traction around. And we have, like I mentioned, this is a super boring product. And what boring means for us is it looks like everything else but it has packed in a lot more of that lower carbon affordable material and property, and it's removing waste from the environment. Um, you've mentioned so many things that make it feel sort of too good to be true. Are there any challenges with this material that you're trying to overcome? Um, it, you know, every material has its disadvantages. What are those with your product? So one of the deliberate choices that we made is that we source ethically. That's always difficult, right? As a business, focusing on how we actually change a sector from scratch can be really, really tough. Now, if we went the traditional way in Ethiopia, for example, we would have just worked with these middlemen that I mentioned, told them exactly what we need, at what volume, we close our eyes, don't know how they get it, but they'll get it to us that we know. We did not feel, actually, we strongly felt that we don't stand for being a company that actually harms others. And that's what we saw in that value chain. So 
the momentum of being able to establish a more ethical waste collection system, which we can buy from, is expensive. It does consume a lot of time, but we do believe it's something that is worth investing our time and money on. What we do hope is that there are more actors, whether they're social enterprises, businesses, public international institutions, that do put more investment on that on our behalf because they believe in the impact that it brings so that we continue to focus on our business and dri- driving a product that that we believe is super awesome and, and could have market traction. But yes, I think one of the challenges, how do we make sure that we do that at scale very fast? And that requires more than us to make sure that it happens. You're clearly very passionate about it. Um, and you have to be because, you know, you've made it the drive of your life, it seems. What set you off on this path? What got you into this industry? Um, have you always studied and worked around architecture? I grew up in Ethiopia. I won't tell you when, just not to date myself. Kidding. It's a, it's about two decades ago when I remember a, a huge transformation happening in the city. When I grew up, it was fairly quaint, very green, beautiful place where everyone knew everyone. Right. Over time, in the in in the form of progress or in the name of progress, we just saw concrete being poured everywhere. Highways were being built, skyscrapers were going up. And I remember walking back from high school, washing my face and just seeing the discoloration in the water, right? Pollution was that bad. And and that really stuck with me a lot. Now, having said that, uh, I, I did go to the U.S. for my higher education. I stuck around in corporate U.S. for a while after that, doing software, nothing related to trash, nothing related to architecture or construction. But there was always this gravitational pull in the back of my head of how do I come back home? And how do I pay forward all of the investment that my parents put into me to reach where I am? Now, a tipping point for me came around 2018, there was news that the largest landfill in Ethiopia, which is in my hometown of Addis, had an avalanche because it was at overcapacity. That avalanche killed over 120 people in that community around it. I think for me, that was one of the first times where I felt there's a bigger problem with how cities are growing, how my home was growing. And I wanted to be part of something to change that. Coincidentally, around that same time, one of my close friends and mentors who was leading a project or leading UNICEF's program in Cote d'Ivoire felt the same way. And he wanted to see how we can work together on driving circularity within cities. So we actually established the first ever circular economy project for UNICEF in Cote d'Ivoire, where we were turning plastics into bricks to make affordable schools. And we made over 300 of them. For me, that was kind of the proof of concept moment for for Cubic in many ways. But really what I wanted to see is how we can do this at scale, how we can do this in so many other countries with very different contexts and do it faster. Because the crisis that nobody understands is these numbers that I mentioned around plastic waste are increasing. They have not stabilized in any way. So the solution and urgency was much faster, uh, much more needed. So several years into that project, I felt like if this is something that is worth failing for, then I should definitely go ahead and build a company around it. So my co-founder Panda and I said to ourselves, this is a venture which is worth failing for. If we failed tomorrow and crashed and burned, we should feel very proud of ourselves. 
And I think it's once we came to that recognition that we started Cubic. And did you ever feel like you came close to failing? Or has it been sort of success after success along the way? As a startup founder, you probably feel you're going to crash and burn three to five times a day. But you're also feeling that this is going to be transformational four to 10 times a day as well. And I think one of the great lessons that I've taken from books that talk a lot about this, one really good one is called The Messy Middle, is don't look at the roller coaster ride day by day. Take a step back and see whether the general projection is upward, right? And I do a conscious decision to do that every month, especially through updates that I give to our investors and partners. So we're very fortunate that both from how our company has grown, but also from the reception that our product and operations are getting, we are on that upward trend. And it has accelerated a lot, especially this year. We were named the world's best startup by the Global Startup Awards. Two weeks ago, we had an honor of meeting President Macron, who wanted to meet African climate tech companies like ours. And the World Bank and IFC named us the best climate tech uh, startup in Africa as well. So the recognition is there. But the part that I've been most proud about is the investors and partners that we've brought along the way. Investment is super, fundraising is super difficult as a startup, irrespective of how cool or great your, your, your work is or how great you are, right? I really believe that the priority for who comes on board Cubic's journey should be aligned with the mission that we have and the conviction we have to change the world. It shouldn't be around our returns exclusively. And I think that's been a slower process than most fundraising journeys, but it's been so worth it because the people that we've brought along are people who have the same amount of passion around all of these different challenges, who obviously believe in what we're able to do, and they've become part of the team to support us in how we grow. I mean, that is an extraordinary lot of recognition. Congratulations. How have you found being here at the Closters Forum? Do you feel that there's a great deal of actionable things to take away, that you've met people who will help with this? I'm really interested to hear your take on this two days in the mountains with like-minded people. You know, when we, we started Cubic, we were hoping that we will always be part of a community like the one that I've experienced here at Closters. But the reality is that you're so ingrained in your business and trying to build it, it ends up being a very lonely journey. And you never have the time to take a step back and really reflect on, one, the contribution that you're making uh, to this broader ecosystem of people that are changing the built environment. You don't always get to have a break and having just an intellectual deep dive around issues and seeing how you can make your business better. That's exactly what I got here at Closters. It was actually a time for listening. Um, I was so happy that I could do more asking questions than talking about Cubic exclusively, which again is my job and I have to do. So if there's one thing that I took away from Closters, it's that we're not alone. There's a lot of people working towards the same goal. They're doing some remarkable work. And we need to put a lot more time into working with them and talking to them and getting their feedback on how we can make our venture better for, for society and, and for planet as well. Because listening to you talk about taking this into other countries, my reaction is surely there's enough work. You know, you've already mentioned several places 
several countries in Africa. So how on earth do you expect to take that further across the world? Is that to galvanise other people or to spread cubic across the world? Or would you hope that your mission statement, your ideas, your technology will be adopted by others? Our North Star is how we can get building materials manufacturers to change what they make. So if we thought about cubic 10 to 15 years from now, you should not know us for making these bricks or making these walls. You should know us as the exclusive technology partner for the much larger materials manufacturers in the world who believe in the commercial value, but also on the environmental value that our technology brings. And we actually work with them. I think that's how we're going to be able to get true scale. And the type of partners that we've been working with are really guiding us on how we can work towards that that North Star. I think what I've noticed here at Clusters as well is the we have significant gaps, things that we need to work on, which I knew, right? You can, as a startup, you can't have everything figured out. Just as an example, talking about polymer science, right, with some of the most renowned polymer scientists who have been at this forum has been so enlightening for me, helping me really think through what else should I be considering as someone leading this company on transforming our technology into new different types of materials? Are there other types of institutions that we should be working with and partnering with on R&D? I mean, these are really great kind of sparks that have come uh, by simply being here and talking to people and asking questions. I think that we probably should end there because you have a train to catch. But actually talking of a train to catch and, you know, you're traveling a lot at the moment and talking to people about what you're doing, do you think that the reception from more conventional construction industry is welcoming or still sceptical? I think if we think of that industry as an industry that is looking at its bottom line, trying to grow its market and trying to scale their presence in different types of materials, then of course they're going to be welcoming because we are addressing certain things that enable them to do that. If we are cheaper, if we're easily able to provide fast building walls, as an example, the appetite to work with us is going to be that much more higher. So one of the things that we focus on is right now with developers, listening to their need, selling to them, seeing how that experience has been for them. But ultimately, it's how do our potential clients within the building materials industry also get that same type of experience when they work with us? This is several years down the road, but we've already started to talk to some of them. I don't think the threat is there. What obviously they see right now is, is this is a technology that might be a little too novel for them to be heavily invested in. But this is something that is obviously supposed to be expected. We still need to prove ourselves out in a few more markets, show the use case, show the environmental and social value that this brings. And I think everything else will follow along. Well, hopefully you might be back next year or we can pick up and see how it's going. I'm absolutely fascinated to come along with you on this extraordinary adventure. Thank you so much for doing this and lovely to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to In Line With Nature, brought to you by the Closters Forum, 
Hosted by me, Hannah McInnes. Produced by Claire Heaton. And supported by the wonderful team at the Closters Forum. We'd love to hear your thoughts, suggestions, or any questions you might have about the episode. Just send your email to podcast at theclostersforum.com and make sure to tune in for our next instalment.